Well, if you have a Bible, or if you have an app that has Bible verses on it, you can, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 16. So, uh, a couple of weeks ago, or no, a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of days ago, who knows, time is a flat circle. Um, recently, I was talking to a good friend of mine named Brandon Webb. Brandon's a, a, a pastor in Houston, and we were on the phone a few days ago, and we, we just, this is the kind of thing that pastors talk about, like, hey, what are you going to preach on this week? And we just basically swap that information every time we talk. And I told him that we were going to be doing the story of Hagar in, in the book of Genesis, because that's what, that's what Genesis chapter 16 is. And Brandon, my pastor friend, said, Hagar? Like, Sammy Hagar? <laughs> and, and I said, no, it turns out there's another one. And this one <laughs> is in the book of Genesis. And so my friend Brandon, again, pastor, says, I'm... He said, Rob, I dare you to try and find a way to connect Sammy Hagar to the story of Hagar in Genesis, because these are the kinds of things that pastors do uh, when they talk. So I had this thing of like, okay, well, if I'm going to take this challenge seriously, I have to really think hard, because my, my knowledge of Sammy Hagar ends right about the time that he leaves Van Halen. Sammy Hagar, if you don't know, was the second lead singer from the, for the band Van Halen, mostly through the 80s. And, um, and so... And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I, how do I connect <laughs> baby boomer rock legend Sammy Hagar with the story in Genesis 16? And no kidding, fewer than three hours later, Sammy Hagar is, tw is trending on Twitter. And if a celebrity is trending on Twitter, there's only one of possible three reasons. One, it's probably their birthday. Two, they have COVID-19. Or three, they said something really dumb. And knowing Sammy Hagar, as we all do, you, you can guess which one this was. So apparently, um, Sammy Hagar, I'm trying to see how many times I can say the name Sammy Hagar in a, ser in a sermon. Uh, apparently, Sammy Hagar gave an interview a, a couple of weeks ago that just came out. And in the interview, he basically was bemoaning the fact that he can't perform live concerts right now during this time. Because if there's anything we need more of right now, it's more Sammy Hagar concerts. So he, he was lamenting over the fact that he can't perform. And he said in the midst of that, that maybe we should just like let people die of this virus so that we can go back to having rock concerts. So basically, and I, I realize this is not funny. This is, it's, it's a terrible thing for anybody to say, but that's the reason Sammy Hagar was trending. And so I was able to message Brandon back and say, hey, you'll never believe the timing on this. And because apparently, so here, here's how I connect it. What do Sammy Hagar, or what does Sammy Hagar have in common with the stories about Abraham in the book of Genesis? They both have a complicated relationship with the idea of human sacrifice. So there you go. I did it, Brandon. You owe me. I don't know what it. We, I don't think we had a bet or anything like that. But if we did, I win. Um, no kidding. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it all back to Sammy Hagar because that that bears dealing with. But we're gonna get back to it in a while. So just remember that right now we had talked about <laughs> former Van Halen frontman Sammy Hagar a bunch. So we're gonna pause that part of the conversation for a minute, and we're going to talk about Genesis 16. So in Genesis chapter 16, totally natural transition, we've been following this guy Abram for a little while, for about four or five, verse, or four or five chapters. So in the previous chapter, Abram, not yet known as Abraham, Abram has expressed his concern that he has no natural heir. So God has come to him and said, don't be afraid. And Abram has replied with, how can you tell me not to be afraid? I don't have any, no one, no one will, uh, no one will inherit what I have to, to pass on. No one will inherit my story or my name. And in the ancient Near East, that's a really big deal. And so 
God has come to Abram in the story and said, you will have uh, biological descendants, basically, natural heirs. And, and so God tells Abram, this is going to happen. And God assures Abram, you will have a child and your story will continue. Which, so that has just happened in Genesis 15. And now we're going to jump into Genesis 16. So I have to offer a trigger warning here because we're about to look at a story that has a lot of, or at least the overtones of, domestic abuse and sexual violence. So that's a pretty strong trigger warning that I feel like we need to offer here. So if that's, if that's a lot for you, I, I, just, I just posted yesterday that like I was, I was hoping we could make today like a little more lighthearted and a little breezier, but then I remember the story of Hagar is a story about violence and domestic abuse. So we, I'm kind of I'm locked into this one because that's the, we're, we're going through the series. So if that's something you can't deal with right now, if, that's a, if that is a conversation you would prefer to not have right now at this moment, feel free to pause this, log off, come back later when Matt and Allison are doing the music at the end. That's totally okay. So that is at the heart of the story that we're going to be looking at today. So we're in Genesis 16, and, and again, the, the setup here is Abram has been promised like a natural heir, that he will have biological children of his own. So, um, then in, so in Genesis 16, it says, now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, which is to come off of a story that says you will have natural heirs and then to have the next sentence be Abram's wife had no, had no children, then that, that creates a little bit of dissonance. And so then it says, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave and perhaps I can build a family through her. So this is messed up and problematic on so many levels. Um, so also, first of all, probably the first question we should be asking is, why do they have an Egyptian slave? So remember a few, we, we talked about this a long time ago, back when we were in the building, but we looked at Genesis 12, and there's a story in Genesis 12 about how Abram and Sarah go into the, the country of Egypt, and they lie, and they tell the king of Egypt that everyone, or they tell everyone, that Sarah is not Abram's wife, that Sarah is instead Abram's sister because Abram is worried that people are going to look at Sarah, people with power are going to look at Sarah, and they're going to kill Abram in order to get to Sarah. So he says, let's just cut out all the stuff that has to do with me, and let's just let them have you if that's what they want. So they go in and they tell everybody that Sarah is Abram's sister. And so then Sarah, um, so we're told then that the king took Sarah, quote, into the palace, which we can imagine what that means. So then in, in fact, if you go back to Genesis 12, this is what we're told. In Genesis 12, verse 16, it says, He, the king of Egypt, treated Abram well for Sarah's sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and cattle. So there's a story where Abram tells a lie, totally throws Sarah overboard, and the end result is Abram gets a lot of wealth and possessions, including enslaved humans. So eventually the ruse is up and they're exposed for the lie that they've told. And instead of there being any penalties, they're basically just told to leave with everything that they've already gotten. So Abram gets to keep all the stuff that he's been given, including the male and female slaves. So why do they have an Egyptian slave? Well, the whole thing tracks back to a story about how Abram lied to save himself, tosses Sarah overboard at the first sign of trouble, and then gets rich in the process. Hagar is a physical reminder, is a, hum is a living, breathing reminder of this specific event. So Hagar is not a willing participant. I, mean, I, th I think we can, we can assume this was not, obviously this was not Hagar's idea. So far, Hagar has made no choices on her own. 
But Hagar is also, again, a physical reminder of what was probably a deeply tr um, traumatic and heartbreaking experience for Sarah. So that's the whole, the whole thing. And then, so Sarah basically says, you can have a child with Hagar, but we'll all pretend like that's my child. And then, then we'll, have, we'll go ahead and have our like, legacy continue. So again, deeply troubling part of the story. We're not even most of the way through it yet. So in verse three, it says, um, it says, so after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah his, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. Again, Hagar is fully not making choices for herself in the story. Then it says, he, Abram, slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarah's upset at the way things are going. She seems pretty mad at everybody. And then uh, specifically Hagar and Abram. And then in verse six, it says, uh, Abram is speaking. He says, your slave is in your hands. Abram said, do with her whatever you think best which is, again, really troubling. Like if, if you've been pitched this idea that Abram is like this upstanding biblical hero all the way through, this is probably a little bit jarring for you because this is very upsetting stuff. And then it says, so he says, your slave is in your hand, do, what, do whatever you think best. And then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Now the word mistreated here is very broad and it's hard to say exactly what this is, but it must've been pretty bad. It's safe to assume that Hagar experienced some pretty severe abuse because for a pregnant enslaved Egyptian woman to leave a tribe and go and basically just like make a break for it, that is, at this time and place, this is an incredibly dangerous time and place. Even if you're traveling with other people and with resources, this is an incredibly dangerous time and place. So for a pregnant runaway enslaved woman, Hagar's chances of survival would have been almost zero. So Sarah must have done something pretty horrible to put Hagar in a situation where she felt like this is the only choice I have left. So now this is deeply complicated for all sorts of reasons. And by the way, if you want a better sermon about this story, about a year and a half ago, Danielle Schroyer was at our church and she preached a, story, uh, a sermon about this. And I, so it was so good. Like I fully, there, were, there was a part of me that was like, I need to just not preach a sermon this week because I should just refer back to Danielle's stuff. So if you wanna hear a better sermon about this topic that deals with all of this stuff, uh, you can scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and I, I left a link to Danielle's uh, superior sermon about this exact same topic. Anyway, so it's easy. So we take a look at this and Hagar has, has left because of the mistreatment that Sarah has inflicted upon her. So. It's easy to judge Sarah in this situation, and rightly so. Sarah is fully in the wrong here. But it's also worth noting that when someone has been the victim of abuse, it can often cause the abusive pattern to spill out onto other people. It's, I mean, there's this very old cliche that says, hurt people hurt people, right? And so this is sort of what we're seeing because Sarah has already been given plenty of reasons to believe that her existence in this arrangement is not stable. She's already been handed off to at least two foreign kings. And now she's worried that Hagar is going to take her place. So Sarah is worried about her own survival and her fear is coming out as misplaced rage towards Hagar. 
By the way, if, if the story is beginning to sound like weirdly familiar and you can't quite place like, why does this story seem so familiar but you haven't read it out of the book of Genesis? This, is, this story is the direct basis for Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale, which obviously was made into a TV show. So if, if, you, if you're reading this and you're thinking, this is very messed up, where have I heard this before? It's possible it's because you, you've watched the, the Handmaid's Tale. So it's, it's upsetting there and it's upsetting here. So that's, um, so that's what we have. So Hagar has been so deeply mistreated by Sarah and Abram that she has fled. Now she's off on her own, a pregnant runaway enslaved woman. And then in Genesis seven, or uh, I'm sorry, in verse 17, oh, sorry, no, in verse seven, it says, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was sure, it was the spring that is beside the road to shore. And he, the angel said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, which if I was Hagar, I'd be like, you can just call me Hagar. Like you don't have to add the nickname also. So Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel, then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her, which, okay, that should be very upset. That, this piece of advice coming from an angel of all characters should be very upsetting to us. This, this, like we should not be, super happy that this is what the angel says. So, because again, at face value, this feels deeply problematic. Hagar is being told to go back and to submit to the person who has abused her in every possible like meaning of the word. Um, in fact, a couple of years ago, there was a pastor here in Fort Worth who, um, who gave basically this exact advice. He had a, there, there was a, a woman who was the, a victim of domestic violence who came into his office seeking help. And he told her to go back and, and to submit to her husband. And obviously that was incredibly reckless. And that, that pastor rightly was fired for offering that piece of advice. So we were upset about that happening here. So when we're looking at this happening in the book of Genesis, coming out of the mouth of an angel, that should also upset us. So what's going on here? Like why, why is this what Hagar is being told to do? And again, the time and place was especially deadly for a pregnant woman who was on her own. There are no battered women's shelters in the ancient Near East. There, there is no support network. There are no laws that can protect a person like Sarah. Sarah is incredibly vulnerable in this story. And the angel is telling her to go back, presumably because they both know that if Hagar doesn't go back, she won't survive on her own. It is, and what this sort of highlights is it's a terrible thing to be forced to choose between survival and abuse. Hagar has no good options. And this moment right here is solely about survival. This is, you are pregnant, you are alone, you're vulnerable, you cannot make it out here on your own. You need to go back. And later on, Hagar will leave and be gone for good. But right now in this moment, it's way too dangerous. And the angel is telling her, like, I realize there's no good options here, but Right now, in this particular moment, this is, this is the only way you can possibly survive. Um, this pandemic has placed a lot of people in a similar situation. In fact, researchers have found that domestic abuse right now is high, like specifically like probable unreported domestic abuse because people are having a hard time knowing even where to go if that's happening. Um, researchers have found that domestic abuse in Christian homes, by the way, is higher than the national average probably because of stories like this and because of pastors like the one I mentioned before. So 
this is this is a story. It's a it's a really old story, but for a lot of us, maybe this rings really true. The, the having to sort of live in the tension between survival and trauma, or be, being traumatized, or um, or not, or not surviving. And um, there's a writer named Howard Thurman who wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. And this is what he writes. And we could apply this to, again, domestic violence. We could apply this to systemic racism. We could apply this to all the ways that people are sort of terrorized um, by, by things that are more powerful or that feel more powerful than they are. So in um, Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, this is what he writes. He says, there are few things more devastating than to have it burned into you that you do not count and that no provisions are made for the literal protection of your person. The threat of violence is ever present. And he's specifically in the, in the book, he's writing about police brutality inflicted upon black people in the US. But this could also, we could, we could take the same ideas and apply it to somebody like, like Hagar or to people who are also in a like, constant state of danger and fear. And so he says, um, the threat of violence is ever present and there's, there's no way to determine precisely when it may come crushing down on you. In modern, political, or in modern power politics, this is called a war of nerves. The underprivileged in any society are the victims of a perpetual war of nerves. The logic of the state of affairs is physical violence, but it need not fulfill itself in order to work its perfect havoc in the souls of the poor. Fear, then, becomes the safety device with which the oppressed surround themselves in order to give some measure of protection from complete nervous collapse. How do they achieve this? In the first place, they make their bodies commit to memory ways of behaving that will tend to reduce their exposure to violence. What's he describing here? He's saying some people live in a constant state of fear and fear of like a real, like a tangible real threat that constantly seems to be looming over them. And he calls this a war of nerves. And so what we're trying to do, he says, so what people try and do is they try and modify their behavior and they try and, they try and do whatever they can to minimize the potential trauma and violence. This is where Sarah is. This is, this, is, this is mentally, this is the place, or this is where Hagar is. This is mentally where she is living right now. So lots of people have been the subjects of a war of nerves and for a very long time. And that is what is happening to Hagar. So let's go back to Genesis 16. And uh, in verse 10, it says, The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man and he will be, his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. So um, also something significant here that happens in verse 10. Remember in the previous chapter, just like one chapter earlier, when Abram is lamenting to God that he has no heirs, what does God say to Abram? He says, you will have so many descendants that you won't be able to count them. So that, that is something that he, God has said to Abram, like the patriarch of this entire line. But now the, this angel is speaking to Hagar, a, an enslaved Egyptian runaway woman. And what does the angel say? Exactly the same thing that God said to Abram. Your descendants will be more than you can count. So this fully flies in the face of things like patriarchy or nationalism because you can like look at Abram and say like yeah this line is superior and this line is this is the this is the one that God prefers and so this one is the one that gets all these re like really good promises and everybody else can just get out of the way but no this promise is delivered to an Egyptian enslaved woman so all of a sudden 
patriarchy, nationalism, tribalism, like all of a sudden that stuff starts falling apart because it's the same promise that was already made to Abram. So uh, then if we go to verse 13, it says, she, Hagar, gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son he, she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar had born Ish, bore him Ishmael. So this right here, this is what makes this story so significant. What does Hagar do before she goes back? Hagar names God. She, she says, it says Hagar gave God a name, El Roy, that literally means you are the God who sees. Hagar has given a new name to God. Here's why this is significant. No one else does this. Abram has not given God a name. Abram has been told what to refer to God as, but Abram has not ever given God a name. No one has. The first time a human being in the stories gives a new name to God, it comes from the mouth of an enslaved, impregnated Egyptian woman. So do you think, why is that? Do you think it's possible that the reason for that is because a disempowered, displaced, enslaved, abused woman might have some insight into the nature of God that a wealthy, powerful man never will? You know what I mean? So, and what, what, what is the name that Hagar gives to God? El Roy, which literally means the God who sees, or more specifically, the God who sees me. This is a profound thing for an enslaved, pregnant Egyptian woman to say about God. Hagar has probably gone her entire life feeling fully unseen. It is possible because of Hagar's station in life and because of where she's been and who she's been forced to travel with, it's possible that Hagar has been invisible her whole life. And so to be able to say, you are the God who sees me, is profound. And to offer a, name, a new name to God, which means you are the God who sees. I imagine there are lots of us who know this feeling. Again, victims of abuse probably feel deeply unseen at times. People who feel like they need to insist that their lives matter because people with power continue to give them reasons to believe that they don't. This is a powerful, this is a powerful story to anyone who has ever felt unseen or forgotten or overlooked. Um, look at Psalm 13. So in, in Psalm 13, we sort of get kind of an echo of this. Um, and, and so I'm, in fact, I, I was, when, when there, there was a part of me who was like, I, I shouldn't preach on Hagar because Danielle already did it. So I'll just go to the lectionary and see what, what's in there. And the Psalm for, in the lectionary was actually one of the things that people are preaching on today um, is Psalm 13. So in Psalm 13, this poet writes this. This poet writes, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. So it starts off with how long will you, how long will you forget me? And then the plea is, look at me. Look at me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foe will rejoice when I fall. 
but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me, which he has been good to, like the first four verses don't look like a he has been good to you. It doesn't look like we're, we're leading up to he has been good to me. It looks like we're starting off with, why have you forgotten me? Why do I feel unseen? Why do I feel alone in the midst of all these crises that are surrounding me? So it's this, and we see this language quite a bit in the Psalms, with the language of how long? This, this prayer of how long, and specifically, how long will I feel forgotten? How long will I feel unseen? How long will I be um, off the radar as far as anyone is concerned? The story of Hagar is revolutionary to anyone who has ever felt unseen or forgotten or stepped on or abused or taken advantage of. The story of Hagar is a breath of fresh air to anyone who has ever been made to feel as if their life doesn't matter. Which brings us back to Sammy Hagar, obviously. So I don't normally like name celebrities who say uh, frustrating things, but I mean, I, got, I, I was dared to by another pastor, so what am I supposed to do? So um, when we say, and I realized we were, I was kind of making, making light of it earlier, but when, when someone with a, with a platform, when someone who has people listening to them says something like, we should just let whoever's going to die, just let them die of this virus, just so we can like, go back to having live concerts or whatever it is that Sammy Hagar wants to do. When, when we say th those kinds of things, that, that we're fine with a certain percentage of the population just dying of a virus, what are we saying? When we say that we're, we're willing to let a percentage of people die, what, what exactly are we talking about? Or who, specifically, are we talking about? My guess is he's not talking about anybody that he knows. He, he, there are people in our society, the elderly, the chronically ill, people of color, the homeless, who, for whom this virus has been a lot deadlier for. So when we say things like, we should just let whoever's gonna get it, just let them get it and people die, whatever. What we're saying is, we, we are willing to put the most exposed, at-risk, vulnerable people in more danger because we're tired of the sacrifice of having to worry about it. So who, who who are we talking about? We're talking about people who have gone their whole lives or who have at least spent the last few years feeling acutely aware that there, there is a certain portion of the population that's not that concerned about whether or not they die. And this, all, this has just basically brought it to light. Um, it, it should grieve us when anyone suggests this kind of thing, whether it's an aging baby boomer rock star or a statewide ele elected official in Texas. It should always upset us when someone suggests that a certain amount of human death is okay just so long as we can go back to normal. Why? Because what we're saying there is those lives matter less to me than other lives. And the story of Hagar is an affirmation to anyone who has ever felt expendable or unseen or at risk. If, if when you hear celebrities or, again, elected officials say things like, well, look, we're just going to have to except the fact that a lot of people are gonna die and we just gotta get back to normal. Are you one of the people who you, you have like this nagging sense of, oh, he's talking about me. Like, I, I am one of the more vulnerable. I, I am among the people for whom this virus is particularly scary. So does that make you feel valued or does that make you feel unseen, unloved? Maybe, maybe in those moments where you, when you have that sort of gut level reaction of like, oh, they're talking about me. Maybe you can find some sort of commonality in the story of Hagar. Because the story of Hagar is an affirmation to anyone who's ever felt this. This is, 
a god who says to the runaway pregnant Egyptian woman, you are not forgotten, I see you, and you are remembered. Look at uh, Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8 verse uh, 35, we looked at this last week, but it's, it continues to be relevant. So in Romans 8 verse 35, it's writer Paul, he says, who shall, separate, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. By the way, this line, this week as I was looking through this, this, this phrase right here, we are considered as sheep being led to the slaughter or as, um, as sheep to be slaughtered. Like that line never resonated with me until, until this week when I began to start thinking about it through, the, through this lens of there are people that we've sort of designated as expendable. And that group of people could very easily pray this prayer of, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So he's articulating this, this emotion of, we feel very vulnerable. And we also feel like nobody is that concerned with our vulnerability. And then right after that, in verse 37, Paul writes, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So there's this emotion that, we, that maybe some of us are deeply familiar with of, we face death all day long. We're like sheep being prepared for slaughter. And Paul says, you don't have to live like that. You, you are not unseen. You are loved. You are remembered. This is the story of Hagar. This is what Paul is saying. This is what the poet is saying. Yeah, there are times when we feel forgotten, left, um, thrown under the bus, tossed overboard, whatever, however you want to sort of frame it. Yeah, we just, we feel beaten down and broken in all sorts of ways. And so Hagar is told to go back and she's told you are seen. And then Hagar says, you are the God who sees. And then she goes back. And, but the thing is, Hagar doesn't say that her troubles are over. In fact, we know that they're not. In, in Genesis 21, Sarah is going to continue to do this, and Hagar will eventually have to leave with Ishmael. Um, and they really will be on their own. Hagar's statement here is not, we're in the clear. Everything is fine. I didn't realize that um, I could just pray a little bit and everything would be fine. Like, no, that doesn't happen. Hagar is not in the clear. Hagar's life is not going to just instantly get better the minute she goes back. It's definitely not. So Hagar's statement is not, everything is fine now. She knows that wouldn't be true. But only one fundamental thing has changed in this story. And the change that has happened is Hagar now believes that she is seen. And this seems to be enough, at least at the moment. As people who follow Jesus, it's our job to remind people that they are seen, that they are not forgotten, that their life does have value to us. People who are medically vulnerable, it's our job to tell them, you are not expendable to us. We are not okay with leaving you all on, on your own while we just go back to whatever it is that we're calling normal now. People who have lost jobs and wonder, am I ever going to find another one? Um, pe people who have suffered from police brutality. One of the common refrains here is, it's about being seen. We talked about this last week. The reason the phrase Black Lives Matter is so important is because for 400 years, um, People, black people living in America have believed and been given really good reason to believe that their lives don't matter. And so as followers of Jesus, it's our job to find out who feels like they've been unseen and their, their lives are 
not consequential and to do our best to, to remind people, no, you are seen, you are loved, you are not forgotten. Um, pe people who have lost loved ones during this time, it's our job to remind you, you're seen. Um, not, not just from the virus, but for, for all the people who have lost loved ones for any other reason, but they can't grieve in the way that they've always sort of um, been used to. We, we can't grieve in the way that we used to. We can't have funerals in the same way that we used to be able to. We can't sit with people in the hospital in the same way that we used to. And so there's a grief, there's a loss that sort of comes along with that. And it's, it's easy to feel very alone when you've lost someone in the midst of all of this. And it's our job to at the very least try our best to tell people, I haven't forgotten you. I see you. Um, people suffering from mental illness, which right now there's all sorts of studies that say um, struggles with mental illness, depression, anxiety, like all of these things are on the rise right now for obviously really, um, really solid reasons. Um, people who are in danger and desperate for safety, whether it's a victim of domestic abuse or a refugee from another country, it's our job to say, we see you. If we are the body of Christ, it's our job to remind people you are seen, you are not forgotten. So maybe right now in this moment, you feel a lot of how long, oh God. Like this, the first part of Psalm 13 could totally have been your prayer this morning. How long, oh God, will I feel unseen? How long, how long are we gonna have to keep doing this? How long will we live in fear of this virus or of economic collapse or of job loss? How long until I can have a little bit of peace when I put my head on the pillow at night? How, how long will we keep prep? Pop, I'm sorry, how long will we keep propping up this toxic system of white supremacy? How many more people have to die before we are willing to change something? How long until I find a job? How long until whatever the struggle is goes away? So maybe you're an abuse survivor. Maybe one of these questions of how long, oh God, maybe this sounds deeply resonant for you. Maybe Hagar's story rings very true for you. Um, by the way, if you are currently in a situation where you are physically in danger, um, there, are, there are lots of resources. We included a website link on our site, collectedchurch.net. You can click the link. Um, there's a um, domestic abuse hotline. There's also a website um, for people who have, um, who, who have and are still experiencing some kind of um, domestic sexual violence or um, any, any, anything related to that. If you're unsafe in your home, while you're trying to shelter in place or while you're trying to keep socially distant, there are resources, there are people who can help you. So feel free to go over to our site and click those links if you need to. Um, so maybe, maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're, you're sort of identifying with the Hagar story at a much deeper level than perhaps you ever wanted to or perhaps you would have even six months ago. But it's very real and it's a thing that sort of, you're trying to figure out how to live with. And there are no easy answers to these questions, but Perhaps the best we can do, at least for now, is to tell you you are seen, is to tell you that you are loved, that you are not forgotten, that you matter, that when Hagar, alone and pregnant in the middle of nowhere, is confronted by God, her response is to say, oh, you see me. So maybe, maybe the, the only good news worth hearing right now is you are seen and you are loved and you are not forgotten. So may you carry that with you, may you internalize that, may you find ways to remind other people that they're not forgotten either. And may we, may we remember the story of Hagar as a story of someone who is in the most vulnerable possible situation and in that moment, the thing they most needed was to be told, I see you.
and you are not forgotten. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this very powerful, very um, upsetting story about Hagar and for all the people in our lives who are living this reality, who are in danger right now in their own homes, for people who are physically unsafe, for people who are um, terrorized, who, who are constantly in a war of nerves. We pray for some amount of peace. We pray for safety. We pray for resources that will help someone feel safety. Um, and for those of us who just feel unseen, for those of us who feel lonely, for those of us who feel vulnerable, may we remember that we are not forgotten, that we are not unseen. May we, like Hagar, call upon the name of a God who goes by the name Elroy, who goes by the name of you are the God who sees me. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.